When you've lost someone, if what you really want is that person back, you're longing for that person, nothing that you do addresses what it is you really want. So Achilles goes nuts, he kills a lot of people, he sacrifices 12 Trojan youths, does this huge funeral for Patroclus, he kills Hector who killed Patroclus, right? And none of that brings Patroclus back. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Mouse Book Club. My name is David Dwayne. I'm the president of the Mouse Book Club and your host for this podcast. Today we will be talking about the Iliad by Homer, one of the cornerstone texts of Western civilization. Our guest today is Emily Austin, who is a professor of classics at the University of Chicago. And Emily is super interesting to us because she is an expert on emotion in classical literature, which she's explored through a new book called Grief and the Hero, The Futility of Longing in the Iliad. What we talk a lot about today is emotion. And I think that's interesting for us because that's the way that in classical texts, it's a little bit difficult to, for you know, a contemporary audience to relate on the level of language, but we can definitely relate on the level of emotion. Uh, and even though our forebearers handle their emotions in a different way, there are a lot of parallels we can draw right to our own day and to our own lives. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of lessons we can take away from this. One formatting note is that this conversation wasn't with a live group. We only developed that live format, which we really love, at the beginning of our third season. We have two seasons worth of text to backlog, and one of our strategies for that is to use some of the one-on-one interviews uh, that we've recorded over the last year or two, uh, and we'll kind of release those in batches. You know, so the refusal texts will all come out together, the struggle texts will all come out together, etc. With that note in mind, please enjoy this conversation. We start these interviews off by asking everybody a similar question, which is, of all the texts you could be exploring in your own research, why do you choose Homer? Why do you choose the Iliad? Right. And do you get a similar answer, which is, like, it chose me? It's all <laughs> over the board. I asked the guy who is the in the Poe interview, he said, I was at summer camp, and this counselor told this ghost story that was the black cat. Nice. And he's like, it just cut me in yeah. half. You know, so anyway, yeah. people always have strange. So, I mean, the Iliad is very rewarding for me to work on. Um, but it is surprising to me that I found it because it's not very accessible in English. But now that I've like fallen in love with it, I teach it in English all the time. I want people to love it. What I find particularly compelling about the Iliad is that like it doesn't kind of hit you over the head with a single message or a single story. So you could read the Iliad as an anti-war poem, but it's not only an anti-war poem. It has so many voices in it and it has a main character, Hector, who's defending his family and his city, and that's very compelling. And then it has this attacker, Achilles, who's consumed with grief for a comrade, and that's very compelling. And those are really different. And yeah. like, even though the the story is complicated, it's also easy to understand that everyone's life is very complicated and that there's a lot of motivations at play. It doesn't force you to take sides, even though it still forces you to think. When did you first read it? Um, I read it when I was a freshman in college in English and I didn't like it. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Because most of the Iliad, so this is 
you guys are publishing like the end, but yeah. most of it is just battle scenes over and over and over again with very in-depth descriptions of how somebody died. And it was just too much for me to get my head around. Mm-hmm. And just wait till you get to book 24 and Priam and whatever. And I got there and it was 10 lines. And I was like, that was a lot of death to just get to this little bit. Um, and then I learned some Greek because that's what I was studying. Like the Greek language. Yeah. Yeah. Ancient Greek. And then I realized that the language is very subtle. Again, he's he's never telling you what to think. He just shows you all this stuff. So that really drew me in, and I love it from the first line. But I know it's it's a hard text. Do you teach it in Greek, or do you teach it in... Both. Okay. Yeah. How is it different when you teach it in one versus the other? Well, in Greek, you can only get through a little part of it in a class. So that gives you an opportunity to slow down and think. But it's hard to describe the difference. The Greek is just kind of beautiful even though the topics are so hard you can read and enter in things that are really really difficult and still have a kind of beautiful poem i've listened to some youtube clips of people reading it out loud as it would have been performed in ancient times yeah yeah it's just such a wildly different experience and that even is different from reading it on the page yeah there were no pages there were no pages it was just Somebody singing, composing on the spot would have taken probably three days. I mean, this is a really long poem. I do feel sometimes like this nostalgia. I will never know what this experience really was like for an original audience. You know, one of the tropes, I guess, in investigating Homer is like whether or not Homer existed. Right, right. How do you personally think about authorship? Since that question has dominated... Homeric scholarship for so long, I feel a little bit like I don't need to take that on too. But completely without me looking for it, the more I work on the Iliad, the more it seems to me to be the work of one author. And there's specific patterns in your research. You looked at very specific. (laughs) Yeah, you can talk about that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, I'm interested in the development of the theme of grief and longing. So I love this. There's a word that describes longing in the poem that when it's not in a grief context, um, it's like the kind of, it describes the kind of feeling that you would have if you had a group of people together and um, one of them was missing. And the way you feel, of a feeling that a group has when the whole group is together and that you know something is, is not there. That's the kind of word for longing. Um, so it's usually used in a battlefield context. And Achilles, um, he describes his grief for his comrade Patroclus with that word for longing. And he alludes to like situations like, I don't want to eat now because you, Patroclus, used to prepare food when we were going into battle. And now I have no desire for food because I miss you. I have this longing for you. And what his life used to be, there's like a hole or a tear in it. That's how I look at it. So he describes grief like this feeling of lost wholeness. It pulls this thread through the whole poem of like, when you've lost someone, if what you really want is that person back, you're longing for that person, nothing that you do addresses what it is you really want. So Achilles goes nuts. He kills a lot of people. He sacrifices 12 Trojan youths, does this huge funeral for Patroclus. He kills Hector, who killed Patroclus, right? And none of that brings Patroclus back. It's a really simple but deep explanation of how we get stuck in cycles of vengeance by our grief because vengeance is not really addressing the underlying reality. And so that's what I traced 
And I think that really comes out at the beginning of 24 when he's going around and around and around. He's repeating the same grieving patterns, the same vengeance patterns, can't get out of it. And those are not mirrored on the children's side? No, it's so weird. They should have this kind of longing for Hector, but the poem doesn't use that language on the Trojan side. It's as if with Hector, the poem wants to talk more about, sorry, I use this language of intentionality with the poem, (laughs) but the poem wants to talk more about what it means for a whole city to lose their defender. So it's telling a different kind of story. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that might be why the language is unique between the two sides. What have you learned about Greek that's different than, let's say, English? We have the word longing. We have a word yearning. We have a word desire. But those don't map perfectly onto the Greek words that are revolving around the same set of things. And I, I have a friend who's Portuguese, and they have the word nostalgia. And then they also have a word that's something like saudade. It's like nostalgia, but it's more positive. And, and, and I just kept asking her, I was like, well, what is it? Is it like this? Is it like this? And she would try to explain it to me. And, but it's like, it's so cultural. We don't have that word. I find it really beautiful to study literature and let the story and the context of the story like help me understand what the word means. But it also opens you up to a reality that we can understand. We can understand what it's like. It's almost like how like phantom limb, like when people have lost a limb, they they feel the limb. Grief is the experience is that there's something wrong with reality right now because the old reality isn't there. And experiencing that absence entails a kind of desire or impulse for it not to be there but we don't have one word for that yeah it strikes me i wish we could just you know invent these new words in english that we could insert that would have that kind of power uh right that these other words have right what are the actual words for longing in greek so the one i work on is pothe or pathos and then there's hemeros which is another word um for desire that have some semantic overlap with this um there's eros um that whole group of words there's there's other words like even this verb hiemi can mean to like desire what are some of the other key terms in the iliad that we don't have a cluster of concepts have to do with honor so the background of the world of the Iliad is fighting for honor so that they receive glory that'll help them live forever because they're gonna die that's the kind of the framework is we're mortal we're gonna die uh, but we can live forever if we achieve glory and you achieve glory by being excellent and in the Iliad you can be excellent through warfare or through speech that's the kind of their version of history. They have these songs that people are singing, and so right. can't remember. Is it Kleos? People... So Kleos is the is the glory word. Yeah, imperishable glory. But Kleos kind of means like renowned. Yeah, it's like the glory that's talked about. Right. It has some resonances that you know make it a little bit hard to translate. Excellence is erite, and um, honor is time, and it's really really important. And then the other thing that's odd about the value system that's kind of behind the Iliad is that all of this stuff kind of doesn't exist unless it's externally recognized. So Achilles is a little bit of a loner in this respect because he thinks about having honor kind of on his own and that he could go home from the battle and not keep on fighting and still have honor and that he gets his honor from Zeus. But the, the framework is the community has to recognize like, oh, you were excellent in that battle and they give you gifts of honor and then you, your honor kind of exists in the gift. What's the Iliad that you read now versus the Iliad that you read when you were a yeah. freshman? I mean, I think that now I'm much more interested in how the characters 
talk to one another and how they motivate one another because that points to values that they're appealing to. And it's not as simple as what I just described, right? Um, And I get really interested in that. Like when, so they think a lot about dying a glorious death, but sometimes they just think about surviving. So when are they saying like, I'm actually just going to die and I don't want to die, die or live. And when is it die gloriously or live gloriously? And that's one set of examples. Um, I've become really interested in another character, Ajax, right now, who is the second best Greek fighter. But he's a good fighter because he's good at defense. And like that's very different from being good at offense. And he always thinks about, well, at least in book 15, when there's a lot of pressure on the Greeks and they're going to lose their homecoming, their ships are about to be burned, they might all get annihilated. And he's he's always thinking about everyone living. And he's not necessarily thinking about kleos only. And so I read with a broader range of values. I also think a lot about story. So I think about what makes a story build tension and then how does that tension get released? One of the things that Iliad is doing is it like gives you a pattern then it repeats the pattern and there's different things at stake each time. So the beginning of the poem, we're fighting for Helen. So Helen's two husbands have a duel. Book three. So Paris fights Menelaus. And then in book seven, it's like, actually, that's not really what the poem's about. And so there's another duel between Hector, who's the real defender of Troy, and Ajax, who's the second best after Achilles. And then actually, that's not really what the poem's about. So then in book 22, we have Achilles fighting Hector. But you have a pattern of duels. So I, I get interested in following these threads. What's interesting to me about a text that can be read more than once, or a movie that yeah. can be watched more than once, yeah. or a, a story that can be told more than once, is that you can make more connections. Right. And then when you read it, you're able to look through the connection. You're able to see it through the almost like a net of associations that you've already made. And you can start making more connections, you know, and then suddenly this thing becomes totally uh, like a a full starry sky almost when you're looking at it. Yeah, it never stops giving the Iliad. It it keeps giving. For me, I love rereading books, but the two that have struck me the most as we're wording rereading are the Iliad and the Lord of the Rings, actually. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I keep finding new things. So I think yeah. this is really great that you're publishing the end because the end does inform what you read for the whole time in the Iliad. And, and you know, it'll make it kind of more exciting to go back to the beginning and see how we got here to, to start at the end. I've thought about teaching that way even, teaching backwards. Well, that's interesting. How has your approach to teaching it changed over time? It's just hard to teach. It's so so bewildering. And I do now try to set people up for story arcs sooner. But you also don't want to give away endings and you want people to be able to be surprised, which is very un-Homeric. Like everyone would have known the ending of the poem the whole time and they would have been reading for that end time so I, I fight with myself a little bit there to, to just mm-hmm. be like you know what Patroclus is gonna die and they're like why did you tell us that <laughs> like so you pay attention to this moment in book 11 when it's like and that was the beginning of the end for him because that's really exciting if you know he's gonna die in five books a kind of a secondary follow-up question to how reading has changed do yeah. you map the characters on to people in your life or oh. the experiences the emotions Not intentionally, but it does happen. There's a lot of resonance between my professional work and people's real experiences that I didn't expect. 
When I got this job, I gave my first lecture downtown, like at the cultural center, and a bunch of friends came. And afterwards, I got a long email with somebody talking about her experience when her mother died and how all she could think about was buying the most expensive coffin there. And like, what is that? It's like this desire to do something. I have another friend who lost a, a really good friend in the military. And, you know, and I, when I talk about Achilles and Patroclus, I'm always sort of thinking about her and her friend and wondering how much is this true? Uh, well, yeah. That's, that's interesting that you bring up that concept of truth because one of the other books we published was Exodus. And really interesting observation about that that came out when I was interviewing somebody about it, which was, did it really happen? And it's almost like the power in that text isn't so much that it's a historic text that happened one time. That story has played out hundreds of times, which is why so many different communities latch onto it so hard. You know, that it was an important text for the Puritans who were coming to America. It was an important text for the civil rights movement. That same fundamental human set of emotions or experiences. So it's similar to the Iliad, I guess. Did it happen? It exactly. happens every day. It's happening in your life right now. Yeah. That's a much more relevant or important or uh, maybe we don't have a word for this. <laughs> significant takeaway. Right. Right. No, I, I've always been really unworried about whether the Trojan War happened, for example, or whether whether childhood myths are true. Because the way myth is true, it shows you more about life. And not necessarily that it's teaching you how to deal with life, but it's just showing you story patterns and and also putting them into holes. I think a really important function of story is that somehow when it's a coherent whole, you can deal with it better. Whereas when you're just experiencing raw life, you're like, where is this going? And I don't know what to do with this. But when you get to enter into somebody else's story that's already been told for you, um, you can kind of ponder the meaning a little bit more easily. And, And yeah, and it does resonate back. When we were putting this book out, I was teaching a lot at high schools on the South Side, uh-huh. uh, teaching design in primarily African-American schools, and almost every single student has some very difficult experience of somebody they've known who's yeah. been a victim of violence. Yeah. And, and it just got me thinking a lot, and I was reading this and going to these schools every day. And just thinking about, like, this is playing out right now. I know. All over the South Side of Chicago. I know. On the West Side of Chicago. I know. And it kind of gets into another question, which a lot of people might think about when it comes to the other, which is, why should we read this now? I know, I know, I know. know? If you've never read it before and you're thinking, well, of all these options I have, why why would I pick up the Iliad? Yeah, and and it is a tough read to get to that, those human stories, because even though it's playing out all the time, it's in a world that's so different from our own. Um, we don't experience ongoing warfare for cattle. Like they're, they're just always sacking a neighborhood town to get food. I mean, it's just, a, it's a very violent world, but you're right. We do live in a, a world that is still experiencing violence, even if for different reasons. So there's, there's a lot of resonance. And I also just think that it happens to have been a text also that has influenced a lot of subsequent literature. It just has. And so that also makes it really fun to read if you care about where some of the ideas that have shaped our own ways of thinking have come from, because people just kept going back to the Iliad. Whether they did it in ways that I think were good readings of the Iliad or not, right? When the first person who translated it into English basically thought that you couldn't be a virtuous Englishman if you didn't have 
have these great noble characters in English. But when I read it, I'm like, they're not that noble, <laughs> you right. know? But, but it's still so valuable. It's not that they're total jerks either. I think it's helpful for just seeing what warfare does to you. I mean, I also think one of the messages of the Iliad is at the end of the day, everyone's fighting for the same thing. Some kind of mix of saving your friends, saving your city, saving your family and recognition and being your own person. Like, what does it mean to be alive and be recognized as, as excellent, as a good person, as a functioning human? And all of that stuff doesn't always hang together that well. And so that creates a lot of the tensions in the text, too. Hector's really stuck. His wife's like, you should come inside the wall and fight from here because I don't want you to die. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to die either because when I die, the city will be sacked and you'll be taken away in slavery. But I still have to fight out front. You know, and he's just kind of stuck. What are other questions you have about this that you plan on drilling into Oh, so in the future? Opening out from Ajax, I'm interested in going deeper into this narrative reversal that happens in the poem. So we haven't talked at all about similes, by the way. And one of the things I think that strikes a modern reader of the Iliad or of Homer right away is there's all these moments where the poet stops and says that what they were doing is like and then goes on a long thing that has nothing to do with the context. So this will happen in 22, right? You're talking about eagles or hawks and bunnies or lions and deer and or rivers and headlands and all this stuff. And well, one of the things it seems to be doing is helping you see that situations on the battlefield have resonance with normal life and also are very different. My favorite one is those like flies attacking a milk pail and like, okay, milk is very different from a human person and having a human person surrounded by warriors is very different from having milk surrounded by flies. So it brings out what is happening in battle somehow by showing you what it isn't like, even though it's also like it. And that's what the text says. So similes do that. Lots of people work on this. Do they do it because it sounds good? Maybe. When it's sung? Because immediately I think of like hip hop and I think about words and phrases that they throw in similes that they they drop in yeah just because it makes it sound i mean they're beautiful some of the similes are really beautiful the iliad the the greek is just gorgeous (laughs) it really is gorgeous um i think that's an important point not everything in a poem has to be useful right it can just be it can just be there unless or useful beyond aesthetics exactly it could (laughs) it can just be there Okay, so that's that's happening. And then on the level of narrative, this poem is talking about how Hector died. And the reason it cares about that is because when Hector dies, we know that the city of Troy is going to fall. So ultimately, it's a story setting up the fall of the city of Troy. Now, a huge part of the middle portion of the poem maps all of that, the future sack of Troy, that it'll never tell, the poem will never tell that story. It maps it all onto the Greek side and the assault on the Greek ships. So the Greeks build a wall around their ships. There's basically a siege. The wall gets broken down. They're they're fighting. They're retreating. And the Greeks even say when this retreating is happening, like, fight for your cities, fight for your families, uh, even though they're far away. But it's as if it's really a sack of a city. And this relates to my interest in motivation. Why do that in the narrative? When you're setting up a story about really the destruction of one civilization, do you show it almost happening to the attacking one? Uh, You can have a pretty cynical reading of that, which is like the poet cares more about the Greeks than the Trojans or something, or or not even that, that the Greeks aren't really in danger. So it's a kind of... Cheap way to build drama. Exactly. 
and that's one way of reading it. I do think for me, I'm also interested though in how it pulls out these common stakes that are common to both sides, that life is at stake for both sides. And the actual moment of battle, it really is I die or you die. I think that might be what's go- part of what's going on. But anyway, I'm interested in reversals, I guess, um, and what they do to the narrative. Are they just flourishes or are they telling us something? Do you have a copy of the Greek around by the chance? I do. You want me to read something? Yes, is it possible? Just like one section that you want. Okay, so I'll read. When Priam comes to Achilles, he gives this incredible appeal for pity for Achilles to compare him to his own father. And he, he talks about what it means to have lost Hector. And then the last two lines, he says, Have reverence for the gods, Achilles, and pity me remembering your own father but i am even more to be pitied because i've endured what no other human on earth has ever endured i've stretched out my hands to the mouth of the man who killed my son so this is the greek of that And then the next, let's see, six lines. So he spoke, and he stirred up in him a desire to weep for his father. And taking him by the hand, he pushed the old man away gently. And the two of them were remembering the one was weeping for Hector, the manslayer, curled up at the feet of Achilles. But Achilles was weeping for his own father, and again for Patroclus, and their groaning rose up through the house. And this is the Greek. Hos fato do darapatros huf fimaron orse oyo hapsamanos darajeros aposato Echageronta to demne samano homen hectoros androfanoio, clay adina proparoetha podon acheleos elusthes, autar achileos clay in heon pater alota daute patroclon tondestonache catadomat orore. Okay, thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Huge thanks to Emily Austin for being with us today and for reading that Greek. How cool is that? Just a reminder, if you are interested in this idea of emotion in uh, ancient Greek literature, her book is Grief and the Hero, The Futility of Longing in the Iliad. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, most books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois, who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, 
just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again, and please join us next week.